Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We hear a lot about, you know, will Facebook be regulated? And if so, how much will that affect their bottom line? Here to weigh in on that and other Washington policy matters is Isaac Boltanski, Director of Policy Research for Compass Point. Um, Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. I want to really start with Facebook because this is what's dragging down futures uh, ahead of the New York Open. How realistic do you think it is that uh, the folks in D.C. will actually make some kind of move on Facebook? Facebook in the near term? I think my city is going to talk about it a fair amount, but I don't believe that's going to lead to actual action. You know, Congress has a way of moving from headline or crisis to headline or crisis. And there was some focus on uh, social media's impact on the electoral process uh, at the end of last year on Capitol Hill. But as Congress often does, it simply moved on. So we should expect sporadic hearings and some pointed commentary yeah. from key lawmakers. But as for actual legislative action, it's unlikely in the near term. All right. So, Isaac, you're taking off legislative action with respect to the fact that 50 million people's uh, information was exposed to an analytics company that helped President Trump get uh, elected and their information was disclosed through the Facebook platform. Take us behind the scenes. How much will Facebook have to spend in order to ward off any legislative action in uh, lobbying efforts, in discussions? Or will this just be sort of a hot topic for a moment and then everyone will move on? I think that all of the media, excuse me, social media firms are going to have to increase their D.C. Um, presence over the next few years. The conversations, and particularly uh, the policy conversations around uh, content and and proper channel protection and data security and data fluidity, all of those things are going to continue in D.C. And so all of those firms are going to have to increase their presence in town, even though the likelihood of actual action remains yeah. low. Well, the CEOs might be spending a little bit more time in, in Washington, D.C. as well, I imagine, Isaac. How long before we see the CEOs of these big tech firms just lined up in front of Congress? I think it's something that's absolutely possible during this Congress. You hear more and more as you walk the halls of the Hill uh, concerns about the uh, impact of social media on the election process. And with the midterms only a few months away, I think that there's a real shot that that could happen over the next few months. Um, if it's not then, it will be soon because this topic is going to hang around Capitol Hill for the foreseeable future. So certainly this was another instance playing into the bigger story of what happened in the election previously. What was Russia's involvement? What did the tech firms do or rather did not do? And at the centre of all of that, Isaac, is special counsel Robert Mueller. And we're sitting here trying to work out what happens next. And if he gets fired, how significant would it be? Weigh in, please, Isaac. Yeah, look, weekends at the White House, right? I mean, we had a pretty active, uh, we had a pretty active weekend with the dismissal of Mr. McCabe, the tweets about Mr. Mueller's investigation. You know, when you take all these things together, these actions appear to have at least raised the specter of President Trump dismissing 
special counsel Robert Mueller. Now, late last night, the uh, White House, one of the White House lawyers, uh, excuse me, actually President Trump's lawyer, came out and said that there is no consideration of firing Mr. Mueller. If it happened, is, if it happened though, sorry. Isaac, I, I'm trying to understand. Drain the politics from this, because certainly, if you ask a Democrat how significant it would be, they'd give you one answer. Ask a Republican, they'd give you another. Drain the politics from this. Constitutionally speaking, how significant would that be? Yeah, look, most of the personnel questions and volatility that's come out of this White House has been akin to reality TV spectacle. Dismissing Mueller would skew far closer to an actual viable constitutional crisis. There would be broad bipartisan rebukes from both ends, uh, both sides of the aisles and both chambers on Congress. And I think that it would become the number one talking point heading into the midterms. Um, so this would have, Fire Mueller would have actual yeah. real world tangible impact, unlike the personnel carousel that we've seen at the White House for the past 14 months or so. So, Isaac, something else that's going to have real world impact is some of the proposals to roll back financial regulation. And we have seen the uh, recent aspect of Dodd-Frank that's getting rolled back that affects particularly smaller companies. Uh, uh, banks that are in communities. I'm just wondering from your perspective, has the potential regulatory rollback been priced into U.S. Uh, financial stocks already? I think that it's, it's coming close um, when, we, when we look at some of these banks, especially because uh, the, one of the core benefits, which is raising the $50 billion threshold, um, is only raised to $100 billion immediately, and you have to wait another 18 months before it's raised to $250 billion. And that increase ultimately, I think, will be a tailwind for M&A, which is part of the, the story here with community and regional banks. My, my only point of caution is it'll take time for that tailwind to fully materialize. When, when you so, say M&A, you're talking about among community banks. Correct. correct? Community okay. banks and, and, and even moving into the regional space. So in other words, you expect the regulatory rollbacks to pave the way to bigger regional banks. Absolutely. OK. And that hasn't been priced in. I don't think so. Isaac, going forward, this has been a bipartisan push. What are the limits of that? Well, look, this bill uh, that we've been following that got out of the Senate and is now being held up in the House uh, as uh, Republican leadership wants to add more to it, this bill is the last train leaving the station from a legislative perspective. Um, this has been eight years in the making. It's yeah. been, uh, and, and furthermore, Every single data point suggests that Democrats have a tailwind at their back heading into the midterms, especially in the House. So this bill, from a legislative perspective, this is it. After this is done, we're going to have to start focusing on the alphabet soup of financial regulators, the OCC, FDIC, CFPB, and the others to look for actual changes. So for Isaac, anyone talking about infrastructure, are they just whistling in the wind? Uh well, we're going to get a spending bill tonight, and that spending bill should see increases in some infrastructure spending programs. But other than that, that's it for this Congress. There is simply 
no legislative will uh, to act on broader infrastructure policy in this Congress. So all we'll get, I think we'll see tonight. Always great to catch up with you. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. The Compass Point Senior VP and Policy Analyst connecting the world of Washington, D.C. into the world of Wall Street. Should we bring Bob Michael in? Let's bring him in. JP Morgan, Asset Management Chief Investment Officer and Head of the Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Division. He has the longest title on the street. Bob Michael, love catching up with you, sir, and looking forward to the Fed decision later this week. What are you looking out for, Bob? Well, we're looking at a number of things. I think the first thing we're looking for is expectations for the rest of the year. Uh, Since four members have to shift to go to four hikes from three, we don't think it's going to happen. We think that they'll still indicate three, but they'll end up doing four um, over the course of the year. And then I'm looking at the longer-term dots. Uh, We're just below 3%. Do they start to move that up to three, say, three and an eighth percent? What's the catalyst for the longer-term dots to drift higher, Bob? Because most people would say that the tax bill that's gone through is going to be positive for growth. You'll see it in the numbers this year. The Fed may react to that, but next year is more doubtful, and the year after that, even more doubtful. Well, it looks to us that that the the long-term dot has become coincident. And if you believe that, there has been a pickup in global growth, uh, global inflation, Things look good over the intermediate horizon. Some of the rhetoric coming out of the ECB was also pretty positive, talking about how Europe is doing well. I think it's all part of the normalization process, so we are expecting it to move higher. So, Bob, not all rate hikes are the same. And as the Fed is creeping toward the neutral rate, at what point does this create opportunity in the short end? In other words, people going into cash and short-term debt at the expense of risk assets. Well, right now it's all going the other way, right? Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the front end of the market uh, because you've had a tremendous amount of funding come out of the Treasury, $300 billion in in bill issuance. You've got the repatriation of cash coming in from from overseas, and a lot of that's been liquidated. And the cross-currency swap basis, which had made the front end of the market attractive to Asian investors, has evaporated. I think we're getting pretty close. When you look at three-month LIBOR and you're at 2.1%, suddenly you can take a profit in a risk asset and leave it in cash and generate something on it. And I think as we get into the back half of this year, as the central banks switch from balance sheet expansion to contraction, and the Fed, in our view, has raised rates three times going to four, that's when you're going to see cash as a mighty attractive alternative to risk assets. So, Bob, leading up to that, you've been incredibly, incredibly constructive on credit at a time when many other well-known asset managers have de-risked and, and brought down their exposure to things like high yield. You've stuck with it. Are you saying later this year could be an inflection point, even for the likes of you guys? Um, it, it depends what earnings look like. We look at high yield spreads, uh, for example. That That's really the flashpoint for the market. You're at 360 basis points, and all we've done over the last couple months is consolidate between 340 and call it 380. So things look pretty stable for what's been viewed as a sell-off. 
end-of-cycle high-yield credit spreads tend to go through 300 over. We think we're going to be on that path because corporate profitability will look great. The top line will be growing uh, with tax reform. The bottom line will be expanding. You get a bit of fiscal spend. Yeah, um, It will all look good. You and I caught up on Friday, Bob, and, and one thing that stood out for me when we talked was that you don't believe that credit spreads have bottomed for this year. Why not? Uh, just because there's so much positive momentum in corporate America. I-, I told you I've been doing this for 37 years. I don't remember a time when corporate America has had more financial flexibility. And I think right now in, in every corporate boardroom, uh, the CFO, the treasurer, they're struggling deciding what to do. I mean, they're like kids in a candy store with tax reform. Uh, they've taken out cost from their operating model over the last several years. And if you get that fiscal spend and you see revenue growth, then, then they've got a lot of levers they, they could pull. And, and, and we'll see where that all leads to. But, but right now, it all looks pretty positive. Well, Campbell's board wasn't necessarily a kid in a candy shop because they tried to sell debt and had to pay up to uh, issue it. And we are seeing, you know, even though you see tightening of spreads in the high yield space, you're not seeing the same in investment grade. Are you buying that? Are you buying the weakness in investment grade right now? Uh, we, we are. And yeah, you know, you're going through a period of indigestion. There's no doubt about it. It, it doesn't matter. You know, if you go back to the start of the year, people were talking about a melt-up in equity prices and a melt-up in bond yield. And and it hit a wall, and, and we've been in that consolidation period. Campbell's made the acquisition of Snyder's. They had to issue debt. I think if you step back and look at their all-in funding yields relative to where they thought they would have had to do something like that years ago, it's still very, very attractive. I'd say that's the one wild card for the corporate bond market is just to see how much corporate finance activity is going to come out of corporate America. Are you going to see a lot of M&A activity, which is going to lead to a surge in in issuance? Bob, just in a very basic argument, we had this conversation about what the the higher yield at the front end could mean for risk assets elsewhere. And I think for a lot of people, you get higher yields and it starts to bleed down through the capital structure, through senior bonds, through junior bonds, and it makes its way to equities a whole lot later. And we're certainly not there yet in the views of many people. You kind of take this opposite argument where basically you say everyone's bullish equities. And if you're bullish at the bottom end of the capital structure, why wouldn't you be bullish elsewhere? Can you reason with me why the opposite argument doesn't apply here? Well, I, I think the, the opposite argument could apply. And it's a debate that I'm having with our in our equity team quite a bit. Right now, as I said, everything looks pretty good for, for both ends of the capital structure. But at some point in time, the Fed will raise rates to a level which will lean into growth and inflation, and we'll see it and we'll have to start pricing in a recession. And as they get to that level, I, I don't know if it, it's a free handle, but as you get up there, and if you have some steepness to the yield curve, um, then suddenly you've got to start discounting every other asset class by a higher rate. And when you talk to equity investors, whether they're public or private, you talk to private parts of the credit market, everyone's spread to some sort of yield and using some sort of discount rate. And they have to recognize that normalization means higher rates, and they have to be sure that their business plan can absorb a higher discount rate. So, Bob, since we're still uh, sort of in this Goldilocks uh, scene, given what you're saying, do you find yourself trading less? 
The incentive to trade has been limited, certainly over the last 15 months. As vol has compressed, although everyone's anxious to try to do something, there's nothing, there hasn't really been anything to do. Everything has moved together. I think as we get into the middle and certainly the back half of the year, you are going to see volatility pick up, and that's going to give you an opportunity to trade around. And I think we'd be very happy to see that. Bob Michael, sticking with us right here on Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Chief Investment Officer and Head of the Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Division over there. Well, of Facebook, the shares uh, right now in pre-market trading are down a little bit more than 4%. Uh, This comes after the social media company uh, is being uh, uh, targeted, I guess you could say, uh, with reports that uh, it is under review uh, having to do with one of its uh, research employees and what that employee knew about leaked information on 50 million people to Cambridge Analytica. This is the advertising data firm that uh, was supported by Donald Trump's campaign to win the 2016 presidential election. And here to tell us about the effects of this uh, news on Facebook is... uh, our own Paul Sweeney. He is the director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So, well, Paul Sweeney, um, you you a little bit more careful about what you do on Facebook or what you believe on Facebook, or are you just always jaundiced about the whole thing anyway? Yeah, I think at this point in my career, I'm pretty jaundiced, but clearly uh, Facebook uh, in particular, but I think social media in general, you know, really have a real data issue, a data security, a data integrity issue, um, and that they really need to get ahead of this thing uh, much quicker than they have been. I think uh, if you think about in this particular case, it just kind of goes to the issue of, you know, does Facebook in this case really understand what data it has, who has access to it, how it can be redistributed. Um, I think there's a lot of issues here that just I think would cause users over time to become very concerned about how their data is being used. And then ultimately, the business impact at Facebook could be felt on the advertising line if advertisers felt like this wasn't necessarily the best environment uh, for their ad message. So there's a lot of things here, long-term issues that I think Facebook and, again, technology companies in general, social media companies in general need to focus on. That is data integrity. Well, Paul, I want want to talk about exactly what you're saying with respect to advertising and other business impacts, because every analyst who we've spoken to this morning has said that they don't see Washington, D.C., making some legislative move in regulating Facebook more directly. So exactly why are the shares down so much in pre-market activity? Uh, What are are traders reacting to here? I think what they're reacting to is that if you were to ask, uh, you know, long-term tech investors, maybe what is one of the greatest risks to the great tech tape that we've seen over the last several years, particularly the FANG stocks, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, the Netflixes, and the Facebooks, and that would probably be regulatory risk. Uh, These companies have gotten so big, so global, they exert so much control over the global flow of information uh, that there are there is really long-term concerns about regulatory risk for these companies, particularly starting in Europe. Right. Europe has uh, historically been uh, probably the most aggressive regulators of U.S. technology companies going as far back as Microsoft, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And uh, so I think that is probably the bigger issue here. So uh, long-term, I think people feel like this is something that the industry really would be well-served to get ahead of. And 
and take care of on its own before regulators do come in uh, and maybe put some limitations on their business. You know, Paul, I'm just wondering whether this is a buying opportunity then to some people, because it's unlikely that Washington, D.C. is going to really do anything like uh, with respect to regulating Facebook in the near term. EU is another story, but they were going to regulate uh, Facebook anyway. Or is the real story here advertisers and users stepping away from the platform because of this new awareness of the risks? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, what, you know, the Facebook uh, revenue story is a very simple story. It's the same story that a newspaper has, a TV or, uh, station or radio station has. That is amass the biggest audience you can yeah, but wait, and wait, sell wait, wait, advertising but against but, that audience. Yeah, but it's the same story without the same responsibility exactly. or the same traceability. Exactly right. And, uh, and, and really, when you think about Facebook, it's all this unstructured data, uh, which is just basically just means, you know, all the information that we put onto Facebook and we share with everybody. So the unstructured nature of the data makes it very difficult to manage. But I think if you're an advertiser, um, you really cared about the size of the audience, the engagement of, of the audience, and the environment in which your ad um, actually is placed. Is it a, in the proper environment or is it next to some objectionable content? Uh, so I think you know, unless this really impacts user growth, user engagement, there probably is not much of a near-term impact on, on on these companies. Certainly, and I think that's why we, you know, we've seen from these stocks time and time again that there might be a little bit of a setback uh, as some regulatory risk pop pops up, uh, but then they surge right back uh, up on the higher revenues. You know, I was struck once by finding out that there are hundreds of thousands of compliance officers at uh, just the biggest Wall Street banks. That's expensive. These are not cheap employees to have. And I'm wondering, do we have a sense of what the compliance costs are for a Facebook and uh, how much that could grow? Uh, they don't necessarily break out that number, but I think uh, in the last year or so, they've said that they have ramped up their investment um, in R&D to kind of, you know, go to the compliance issues and the data integrity issues. They also disclosed that they hired, you know, 10,000 people just to review content on Facebook uh, to you know try to weed out objectionable, objectionable co content. So, um, you know, they are saying that they're ramping up their spending to, to try to manage this issue. Uh, I don't think that spending is certainly material to the Facebooks of the world or the Googles of the world, uh, but they really need to make sure that they get their story out there, that they are uh, you know, managing this thing aggressively. The alternative is, is something that I don't think they want. Any chance that they're going to uh, do something like require people at Facebook or Twitter or any of these other social media platforms to have such designations as a Series 14, which is typically in the securities industry something you need to be a compliance officer? I can't imagine. Um, yeah, I... I really can't can't imagine here. I think the issue, um, you know, when you think about these technology companies, it's all about the free flow of information, uh, access to that information, redistribution of that in, in, information. Uh, it's been mostly a self-regulatory environment, and it's actually also been a user uh, regulatory environment where, where users, you know, kind of call out the platforms and call out bad behavior on some of these social platforms. Yeah. So uh, it's been really a unique uh, way to monitor it. Paul Sweeney, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we love hearing what you have to say. Paul Sweeney, Director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, and right now, people are bearish on Facebook and dragging down the whole of the U.S. stock market with it.
Well, we got him, uh, we dragged him off the beach, finally, uh, put his surfboard away for just a moment. Mark Travis is the president and chief executive of Intrepid Capital Management. They're based in Jacksonville Beach, uh, Florida. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, maybe just tell people a little bit about how uh, a surfer like you with a bachelor's degree from the University of Georgia ends up running Intrepid Capital. My, what a long, strange trip it's been, Tim as the uh, Grateful Dead used to say. <laughs> um, you know, Pim, I started in the industry as a 22-year-old broker at EF Hutton, and I sold investment management for a decade and didn't like the way a lot of the other firms that we were uh, raising money for were doing it. So we struck out on our own uh, now 23 years ago, and we ran separate accounts for a decade and then started the first of our now six uh, no-load funds um, in 2005. I think what really put us on the map was doing well in the financial crisis of 08 and 09. Our small cap fund won a Lipper Award in both 2008 and 2009. It's interesting to be here today with you and think back now 10 years ago, the demise of uh, Bear Stearns and all the things that have happened since then. And Frankly, the change in investor psychology uh, since then, or particularly in the last nine years. Okay, with you so, running now uh, over a billion dollars, a billion two in, in, in assets, what has been the, the change, and how have you uh, reacted to it, or how have you absorbed that change uh, to the benefit of you and your customers? Well, Pim, I, I think that um, I like to say somewhat sarcastically, but I do believe it's true. Most people are hardwired to uh, buy high and sell low. And... Um, you know, if if you really think to again a decade ago, or even going back further to the the tech bubble in 2000, you know most of the money came into the Nasdaq in probably February of 2000. The market rolled over again, hard to believe about this time 18 years ago. And um, for those who don't know it, it took about 15 years for the Nasdaq to uh, reclaim that old high. So I think to me, you know, you saw investors in the depths of the financial crisis in February and March of 2009, kind of wide-eyed and just terrified. Um, pupils dilated, just the smell of fear was everywhere. And today, I think um, you've had, a, a up until probably late January, unusually kind of uh, unusually low volatility um, that's kind of let everybody become complacent. And so, you know, I think... That's when people need to be on their highest guard, and um, so we'll see what happens well, as we, you know, move into this week and on, and on from there. So, uh, Mark, you think that people should be careful, but we have have we seen the full sort of bull capitulation? The sort of you know uh, retail investors throwing in the towel, pouring all their money into equities that look really crowded, because so far it seems like there still is the residual fear from the credit crisis hanging over markets. Well, I, I think there's some. I, again, I think that we went through a period kind of starting with the Trump bump in November of 16 up until the kind of the, uh, the VIX uh, implosion or yeah. the inverted VIX implosion of late January. You know, we, we'd had volatility below 10 or 12, and you had almost uh, 14 months of nothing but up. So I think it sucked in a lot of money, but now as the short end of the Treasury curve is starting to come up, I think there's going to be competition for money, and and look that even that small move with these long duration assets um, with a you know three year yeah. 
3% 30-year Treasury dings those long bonds pretty quickly. And you see it reflected in, you know, fund, uh, f- no-load funds that yeah. are owning that type of asset. So my, my, my motto today is short duration has a lot of merit. I think that's the way we like to think of ourselves in terms of discounting back a free cash flow and an equity or underwriting a particular piece of debt. How quickly can we get that cash back to us as an investor and subsequently to our fund shareholders? So how much of your portfolio have you shifted into short-term debt, and at what expense? I mean, is it moving away from equities and into short-term debt or longer-term debt into short? Well, I'm really just opportunistic. It depends what I come across as to how I'll be allocated. It's a, a fairly non-traditional balance account. It tends to float between 45 to 60 percent in equity, um, and then there's generally a residual amount of cash, anywhere from 10 to 15 percent. The rest is in fixed income. I do think, with the really tight spreads we saw going into late January, that it really didn't make sense. Uh, I almost would say high yield was an oxymoron at that point, and um, you know, so there's probably five to 10 percent in very short, high quality, uh, high grade um, debt. Um, the the equity, though, really is driven by what we can find both in the U.S. and across the globe, and can we use very conservative, you know, private market valuation, intrinsic value, discounted free cash flow, how you want to term it, um, to get to a higher share price without a lot of lofty assumptions. Can we talk about one stock that I know you're interested in, and this is the Cheesecake Factory based in Calabasas Hills, uh, California. What do you like right. about cake? Well, Pim, I think there's been some uh, private equity, uh, you know, activity in the, the retail space, uh, the, the the restaurant space, excuse me. And um, I think that cake is kind of a destination. I, I think they do more volume per store than almost any restaurant I know of. I think it's close to $11 million um, per restaurant. Mr. Overton's very particular about where he'll put one. Um, they're they really good uh, dining experience and a, at a pretty moderate per head ticket price, somewhere in the maybe $41 or $2 per head. Um, you know, there's very little what we would call net debt. Um, so it's um, – it, I, I think you could see one of two things there. Um, one, I think you can see a higher price because of the way we've kind of done the valuation work on it. But I think you could see either – what we would call a dividend recap, where they borrow some money to pay it out as a special dividend, because at this point, there's really no debt in their capital structure. Yeah, It's really about a $2.1 billion market cap. And, you know, at less than nine times pre-tax cash flow, um, I, I wouldn't be shocked if a private equity firm wanted to try to buy them at a, and take it out at a higher price. They're just starting to kind of go international uh, in, in their franchises. Yeah. Uh, both in Canada and in into China, um, so seems like there's I, something I think, there. And, and Mr. Overton's not a particularly large equity holder. Yeah. I mean, so David Overton, former chief executive and the co-founder of Cheesecake Factory. Mark okay. Travis, thank you so much for joining us of Intrepid and Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.